Uh, thank you for joining us. I'm Harold, one of the pastors. We're going to conclude the Gospel versus Religion sermon series today. I've entitled it No Neutrality. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. It'll be projected overhead. If you have your phones, you can click on there. This is just a setup, verses 1 and 2. And then verses 17 to 21, 1 Kings chapter 18. I'll read this for us. Uh, Elijah confronts Ahab is the title here. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Okay, and then jumping down to verses 17 to 21, Elijah talks to another person, connects him with King Ahab, and then they have their first encounter here, picking up at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 450 prophets of Asher who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. They did not answer him a word. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So in Prophet Elijah's day, just like ours, people worshipped different gods. They had a multiplicity, a plurality of gods. In Elijah's day, just like ours, people weren't as concerned with definitions or doctrines or destinations. But here in our passage, three spiritual realities are revealed. Here in this passage, Elijah reveals, a servant of God, the prophet of God, three spiritual realities. The first is this, no neutrality. There's nothing neutral in the invisible and spiritual realm. Elijah was a prophet who brought a case against King Ahab and the northern kingdom of Israel, which split away from the southern kingdom called Judah back in the 9th century BC. Prophets were nothing less than what you might say, covenantal lawyers on behalf of God. White House has their lawyers. Companies have their lawyers. Maybe churches have lawyers. Did you know God had lawyers? They're called prophets. And they bring a court case on behalf of God to his people, usually because of their rampant disobedience and idolatry, which we just recited in the Heidelberg Catechism. And the prophets are to plead and persuade and convict and charge and warn. And of course, the greatest goal is to win or convert people back to covenantal faithfulness, or else the people of God will suffer humiliation and loss and exile. Well, during one of the worst periods of Israel's history, if some of you think right now our government and is in really bad shape or poor shape in its morality or judgment or worldwide witness, 
I dare tell you this is nothing close. It does not compare. The scriptures tell us that over the northern kingdom of Israel, there were 19 consecutive kings who were deemed to be evil. 19 in a row. And King Ahab might have been the worst. He was notorious. Uh, This is why, yet to this day as your pastor, and I'm not going to curse you or blame you for that. I've never met one of our children named Ahab. I don't meet many girls who are named Jezzy. And if I ask you, what does Jezzy stand for? Oh, Jezebel. (laughs) Lou is not a good one either. Because if you ask, what does Lou stand for? Hopefully you won't answer Lucifer. I mean, all these names have incredible weight or history to them. They have meanings to them. This is why that famous novel Moby Dick picks on the name of Ahab. Well, here's the charge from the lawyer commissioned and sent by God. Verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So the whole case rests upon this word, how long we go limping, limping. It's a strange word. It's a rare word. It's actually used later on for the prophets of Baal in their ritualistic dance that they limped around the altar. What is Elijah's charge? Here's his charge. Limping means to melt down or malfunction. And you are spiritually melting down and you are spiritually malfunctioning when you do what the prophets of Baal did. Well, what did they do? Here's what they did. They had a different Baal or a different God for war. Then if you wanted to become more beautiful, they had a different Baal for that. They had a Baal for party spirits. They had a Baal for wisdom. They had a Baal for fertility and rain. There was a famine occurring at this juncture. And Asherah, the goddess, was known to be the goddess who could bring about fertility and rain. So you see, they had different Baals or different gods for different purposes, different goods, different treasures. According to the prophet Elijah, a covenantal lawyer sent by God to spiritually malfunction is to worship and play around with different gods. To limp means that you have a multiplicity of gods. So when you're at work on Monday or Wednesday or Friday, you're worshiping a different god there. But when you happen to enter a religious institution or a building like this and sing praises to God, you happen to look like you're worshiping God at least on that Sunday. Here's what the prophet announces, though. There's nothing neutral in the spiritual realm. There's no neutrality here. You can't play Switzerland all the time. Always on the sideline. Never take a side. No, according to Elijah, you can't worship beauty. You can't worship reputation. You can't worship your own self. You can't worship your comfort. You can't worship materialism. You can't worship fertility. You can't worship power and success. And my God too. Because spiritual reality is this. Invisible powers are possessive and polarizing. 
in the invisible spiritual realm, which is just as real as our physical, scientific, sensory realm, the powers, principalities, authorities, forces at work, none of them are neutral. In fact, they're possessive and polarizing. At some point, your life will be spent for it. At some point, blood might be shed for it. Ultimately, payments will be made. Some of you might be thinking, oh, this explicit, rampant worship and dancing around altars before idols and statues. Oh, these are for ancient primitive people. Can I suggest something to you this morning? I think primitive ancient people were far advanced in one aspect. And it was right here. Primitive ancient people at least admitted and knew exactly what they were doing. Here's what I mean by that. Primitive ancient people knew they always worshipped something. Primitive ancient people called it for what it is that you are in love or adoring and worshipping something. So I'll give you a couple examples of this. <clears throat> we all know the destructive, just completely life-sucking force of if you get addic uh, addicted to vices, right? Substance abuse, alcoholism, could be gambling. These things will just rob you dry. Addictions to vices. We know, oh, how progressive and intense it can just take over your whole life. I want to suggest to you this morning, did you know that you could also be addicted to what you might deem as virtues? You know, aspirations. Like, did you know you can be an addict over that? The addict over success? You can become addicted to winning? You can become addicted to always coming out on top? And if you ever stop and think and listen to biographies and read the best biography of the wealthiest, most successful, the person who's been there, done that, tried everything, and always came out on top, the author of Ecclesiastes, here's his conclusion at the end of the day. How unfulfilling. How disappointing. How vain was my whole life spent over the addiction of money, fame, and success. You know, yesterday I was going to try to make it, as I do every year, to Turkey Bowl of our women's and men's team of playoffs, but I called someone and I quickly figured out that they were playing in Central California. <laughs> I would not even make it in time, and I still got to prepare and pray for this message. So I missed it, and I was the addict on Instagram stories just following along, and our, and our ladies won again. All right, All right. This is, our, our ladies are just, I, I don't know if you know, I like bragging about this part, it's just like dynastic dominant women of our church, just conquering all. I've lost count how many wins they've had in a row. And then, to my great surprise, the men won too. <laughs> the men like caught up. And I, I got to be honest with you, as your pastor, I don't expect the men to win anymore. <laughs> you know, when one of your children, you know which child that is, like when they win, you're like ecstatic. You give them a bigger hug. You're like surprised. Why do I point this out? Hey, our ladies won again. It's a little less surprising and satisfying this year. 
And I hope you do it again next year. And again, and again, you got to repeat this. And some of you, you know, around holiday times, even if you're succeeding in doing so well, it's still a little anxious and it's just a little stressful, isn't it? Because you got to think about 2020 now. And how in the world are you going to repeat or make sure that it gets better? Addictions that at the end of the day leave you so unfulfilled. Let me give you a second example of an addiction going on. Uh, since we were very young, all of us who grew up in the West, especially in California, women and men, boys, girls, men, it doesn't matter. We are bombarded by images and messages over and over and over and over and over about how you should look. About how you should look. What your hair should be like, your figure, your physique, your height, your skin tone, your complexion. Can I ask you a question this morning? How many of you in this room, if I ask you to raise your hand, are totally happy and content with how you look right now? And if you're not totally happy and content with how you look right now, can I ask you why not? Why not? You know, it's no longer become advertisements. It's no longer just become a healthy life goal to be in shape. No, I suggest to you there's been a deep, deep religious reprogramming going on. And I suggest to you there are spiritual invisible forces at work. There are people in the world right here in this audience who don't think life is worth living unless you look and people think you look a certain way. In all Baal worship, in all Baal religious worship, when you do well, it'll never leave you alone. You'll never rest. You can never get enough. But even worse, when you don't get what you want, when you don't achieve what you've been worshiping your whole life, it'll kick you and cut you when you're down. You'll want to hurt yourself. There's nothing neutral, my friends, in spirituality or religion and in what you believe and how you want to experience it with God. Elijah announces there's no neutrality. A second revelation of spiritual reality. No other gods. There's no other gods. And one of the most effective ways God shows himself is by showing how other gods don't work. One of the most effective ways God shows himself to be alone, true, and real is by showing how other gods don't work. Our story told us that it's been three years of severe famine. Three years is a long time, especially in ancient agricultural societies that were so vitally dependent upon a steady stream or flow of water. Now, a basic Sunday school theological question would be, can God send rain at any time he wishes to do so? And the answer resounding would be from all of us who have any background in Sunday school be, of course, yes. Absolutely true. Can God send rain? Or can God perform that miracle that you so desperately want tomorrow? Can he? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Follow-up question, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? 
Why won't he? Why does it take so long? I'm gonna suggest something to you from this story. God did not send rain for three years. He had his people wait and wait and wait and wait because he wanted to topple the God of rain. God can send the rain, but he won't send the rain until he dismantles an idol, the God of rain, Asherah. Do you know that when Moses was called to lead the people of God out of the kingdom of Egypt after hundreds of years of slavery, that on the way out, God sent 10 plagues, 10 plagues, not a random arbitrary number. Why were there 10 plagues? What was the nature of those plagues? I'll tell you, God wanted to demonstrate and demolish the top 10 Egyptian gods of the day. And on the way out of his people exiting out of the kingdom of Egypt, God wanted to show himself to be alone, true, and supreme by showing how other gods just don't work. Now, there are so many reports from New York at 9-11, how people who had never had any interest in spirituality or religion started entering cathedrals or temples or churches and wanted to pick up counseling and read some books. Why? Why did 9-11 trigger this kind of all of a sudden dramatic spiritual hunger and ache? Well, because Americans, maybe for the first time, some of them felt like, oh, so military might and our immunity and safety and all the economic wealth in the world actually can't protect us. Second spiritual reality, no other God. You see, if God gives water on demand to the people, if God gave you exactly what you want, when you want, and how you want it, right here on the spot, do you know what you're going to do with that? You know what you and I are going to do with that? It's guaranteed. This is what we do with everything. You're just going to go through life and say, oh, it all worked out. You see, my life is fine as it is. Karma is on my side. Good luck catches up to me. The chances are that it'll all work out. Or by my savvy and ingenuity and by how hard I fixed it, of course it's all going to work out. Listen, do you know that if God gave you rain and success and healing and repaired everything that you wanted in your life this morning or by Christmas time this year, that it actually could only fuel and strengthen your idolatry? Do you know that God knows so much better than you that if he gave you exactly what you want right now that could only fuel your self-reliance and your self-worship? My friend, there's actually nothing more lethal than a healthy, safe, and comfortable life without the living God. There might be nothing more dangerous in all of eternity than for you and I to be successful and go throughout of all of life and never feel a need for God. It is actually the revelation from the scriptures and from his prophets and by his Holy Spirit that would tell you, here's reality, here's reality. There is one true living God. There's no other God but him. And if you dabble with, play around with, fall in love with, worship, casually through all of life, and you just play with the multiplicity of gods, there is a price to be paid. Blood will be shed, and a life will be wasted.
you know, more often than not, than not, we just don't really seek or need God when there are showers and showers of winning and success and prosperity and happiness, do we? One of the best things that happens in the life of Christ Central are our stories of grace. People's lives who are being transformed as Jesus becomes central and real and beautiful and majestic in our eyes. I do, in some sense, live and die over these stories. It's why we exist. My friends, this morning, do you remember any one story of grace that happened because everything went right? Can you replay or recite to me one story of grace of extraordinary spiritual growth and an ache and an intimacy with God where your prayer life was absolutely revitalized, your scripture reading was resurrected, where you found worship and fellowship to be sweet, like spiritually you came alive. Tell me the times that happens when everything goes right. It just might be one of the greatest acts of mercy and intervention and love of God in your life that he breaks through. He gets your attention finally by showing you all your methods, all your mechanisms, all your ingenuity, all your power, all your other gods don't work. Revelation number one, no neutrality. Revelation number two, no other gods. Here's the third, no better God. There is no better God. Back to the story, we're gonna read it from verses 22 through 29 as we move forward. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped, there's the word, malfunction. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God, either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So the worshipers of Baal, in effect, do a show and tell about what their gods are like. 
right here in this passage, it's timelessly true. All religions like Baal worship demonstrate and show you, here's an anatomy of how worship is like. Here, right here, in all religious worship. There's no hint of uh, joy or relief or love. I don't know if you can note that in those nine, ten verses. The worshipers of Baal are not moved by trust or thanks, which are the key repeated motivations of a Christian's approach to God. They move, they sing, they dance only to perform. They have to do their song and dance. And even then, they're never sure, never assured, and they're never at rest. You got to put on your best clothes, your best makeup, and you got to put out your best act. You always have to wow your audience, and you got to continue to impress. Because in Baal worship, as in all religion, you have to perform. In Baal worship, as it is in all religion, it's all about how you perform. Even the 450 of them gathered together. But their God does not answer. But their God does not deliver. But their God does not respond. And I don't know how else to describe this to you, but the prophet Elijah, he just talks trash here now. He talks massive trash. He's like, oh, maybe your God is in the bathroom. Maybe you got to scream louder because your God is sleeping. Maybe your God is distracted. He's on a journey. He can't pay attention to you today. He just trash talks it. All the while, all the worshipers of Baal put out all the stops. They get more intense, more frantic, more frenetic. They got to invest more. It's the law of diminishing returns. To get that same high, you got to put in more. And here's what the Bible describes it. Works righteousness is at the core of every religion, and it never works. Yeah, I don't follow K-pop too much, or Korean entertainment, which has gone very Asian and global. It's just, it's perplexing to me, mind-blowing how global it is now. But I read story after story. I can't help but notice it. I don't know who these people are, but... Young actors and actresses and singers, just beautiful people by, by, by picture, just taking their lives. I started to read a little bit more. Why is this occurring within Korean entertainment world? Well, of course, there's nonstop pressure for success, nonstop pressure to do better and better and sell out more tickets and do better. But then in Korean culture, there is such a thing that entertainers are held to this very strict, conservative, almost unattainable moral, ethical, social standard. It's nothing like the West. They have to behave a certain way. And so they're first forced to hide and be hypocritical. And so they're always subject to media scrutiny and criticism and a social standard. In Baal worship as it is in all religion, you do your song and dance. You do your song and dance. And you just hope that that's going to deliver. Here's the rest of the episode. Verses 30 to 40. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. 
And all the people came near to him and repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two sails of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So after this showdown or contest between the prophets of Baal and their God and Elijah, the prophet of God, between this, after the conclusion of this showdown, the God of Elijah demonstrates that he alone is supreme, that God reigns. Here is one true and living God. Because of this spectacular dramatic episode, the New Testament singles out Elijah as one of the goats, the greatest of all time. Because of this showdown, this episode, prophet Elijah makes it into what you might call one of the greatest. But do you understand what happened here? Do you really get what happened here? Do you know why this happened? Uh, two of Jesus' closest disciples, I'll tell you, didn't understand this story at all. So it can't happen. It happens all the time. You could read the Bible, but you may not understand what it really means. So James and John, on the way into a village of Samaria in Luke chapter 9... Jesus was not welcomed there. He was not received well. He was mistreated in this remote village of Samaria. And so do you know what the two closest disciples of Jesus said? Lord, um, do you want us to call down fire to consume that village? Wipe them out? Clearly, they were thinking about this story like this from Elijah. And do you know what Jesus did? It says he turned around to his disciples and rebuked them. Jesus turned around to his own disciples, his own followers who would ever dare say, all those wicked unbelievers out there, why don't you just wipe them out with your holy wrath and fire? He turned around and he rebuked them. Why did he rebuke them? Well, because like Elijah, yes, Jesus is the greatest prophet of God and he did come to bring judgment. Oh, to be sure, there is no more pure and fire and holy judgment of God that will be unleashed 
depending upon your response to Jesus. But much better than Elijah. Much greater than Elijah. And in fact, in ways so unimaginably sweeter than Elijah, Jesus came to bring judgment because without judgment, nothing will ever be made right. But instead of sending fire down upon others, he called that fire to come down upon him. Instead of Jesus calling down holy judgment upon all the people out there, he came to call down judgment upon himself. And that's why the only reason the people who were with Elijah at this time were not also just burnt up by all the fire was because of the sacrifice. The sacrifice, the bull, the cut up bull on the pieces of wood that was totally consumed. That was symbolic that another sacrifice would have to come to lick up all the fire and to be totally consumed. So this is why at the cross of Jesus Christ, my friend, Jesus thirsted. He went through a dry and parched and rocky part of life on that ground. And when he cried aloud, no one answered him. No one answered Jesus. Even for Jesus, there was nothing neutral for him at the cross. Death came crashing down upon him so that a new and never-ending life might be offered for people desperate in need of it. Oh, Jesus Christ who went through the ultimate holy judgment at Mount Calvary better than Mount Carmel. You know, on some occasions, people will, usually I meet for the first time and they find out I'm a pastor and they just look quizzical sometimes. Why would you become a pastor? But, you know, the, the real essence of the question is, why are you a Christian? Like, why did you become a Christian? And I give them a little bit of story of my grace and, but I, I think my answer now is, is I study more of the scriptures and the reason I am happily so lucky to be and stay a Christian is this, is as far as I can find among all the gods in the world, among all the religions you could ever research, no other God was cut down like Jesus. There's no other God who ever bled for me. That's why there's no better God for me. There's no better God than the one who bleeds for me. He bleeds for me. While every other God demands that your blood would run, here is a God that shed his own blood and made his blood run so you can really get what you need. Oh, this is why the author Paul in the book of Colossians, he heralds this glorious message in Colossians chapter 2. He says that by Jesus' death upon a cross, something cosmic, something so life-changing, eternity-shaking occurred. Colossians 2 verses 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of dead that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here's verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumph, triumphing over them in him. 
when Jesus rose from death, took my blood, took my shame, took my sin at the cross, he conquered, vanquished. He overcame all, all competing gods. So just one practical application. One practical thing I hope that you not only take home, but that God would put into practice. So how do you overcome the allure, the addictions, the powers of competitive gods, of rival gods? How, how, do, you, how do you conquer that? How do you struggle with that? Do you even struggle with it? Do you try? Well, if you do it by sheer religious willpower, it might work for some time, but it'll never work for good. Well, there's one pastor who said a young man used to sleep around a lot and then said he met Jesus and the gospel took some power over his life, but then he came into the life of a church and this young man was noticeably... Uh, very manipulative, domineering, controlling, argumentative, like he always had to win. And so the pastor observed, huh, so this young man's old idol used to be sex, immorality. Now his new idol struggle seems to be power, control, domineering over people. But at the root of both of those things is the same thing. The root of both of those things is just the same thing. He just had to feel better than people. He needed power over people. And why do I tell you what the pastor observed? You see, you can try really hard to get rid of one vice, one idol, but then it's only going to be replaced by something stronger. And you're just going to play Russian roulette or a carousel with multiplicity of gods. If you try to just overcome all the competitive gods out there by your own religious instinct and willpower, you're actually setting yourself up for even greater things to take over, namely yourself. Do you know what the gospel tells us to do? Do you know how the gospel tells you to defeat competitive gods? The gospel asks you, instead of just resisting, how about you fall in love with something better? Instead of just playing the game of resistance, the gospel is about attraction. This is why that old 19th century Scottish preacher by the name of Thomas Chalmers, he observed that the love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness, but may, it not be, but may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. The heart is not so constituted. And the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way to dislodge, get your stranglehold off of an old idol is to lodge and attach you to a superior and better affection, a greater love. You know, so in Greek mythology, there are known these uh, beautiful angelic half-animal beings called the sirens, and whenever they sang their songs, it was guaranteed no person ever heard the singing of sirens uh, they could not resist. They would be allured, they'd be uh, enticed, and their ship would always suffer shipwreck. So Odysseus, the captain of one ship, was preparing his men as they were about to sail by this infamous island. He told his men, I'm going to put wax in your ears so that you can't even hear their singing. But I, as a captain of your ship, would like to hear the singing. So I want you to tie me to the mast on board the ship. 
And so as they sailed on by and the sirens started to sing their enchanting song, the men were unfazed because they couldn't hear, but Odysseus, it says, went mad. He went mad and he strained with all his might to get free from those ropes, but his men obeyed him to leave him tied until it was safe to do so. And so they resisted and passed the sirens. A second ship comes along whose captain was Jason and his fabled men were called the Argonauts. And he had a completely different approach of how to overcome and resist and pass the sirens. He had a man by the name of Orpheus play the lute, which is a stringed instrument like a guitar. And when Orpheus played the guitar, it was so beautiful and mesmerizing that when the sirens sang, no one was even tempted. And they just sailed on by. They just sailed on by. Religion, my friends, is endurance and resisting and fighting with all your might so you'll not give in to temptation. The gospel is about falling in love and hearing someone so much better. Is Jesus really better to you? Is he really better to you? Do you forget what he sounds like, what he looks like? Do you know what he offers to you? And to those, anyone in this room who hears and falls in love with someone so much better, you can say along with Joseph who said to Potiphar's wife, how could I do such a wicked thing and sing against the living God? The only way he was resisting that beautiful woman who must have been beautiful was not, oh, I might get caught. Oh, it's just so wrong. No, Joseph said, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against the living God? Joseph knew and loved someone better. And as we come, a close, come to a close in this sermon series, I ask of you, my friend, what difference does the gospel make versus religion? Religion is duties without delight, laws without love. But the gospel is full, full of the spirit of love who set you free. There is nobody who finally gives me some rest on this side of heaven. I've never met someone like Jesus that if and when you happen to be doing pretty well makes me feel a satisfaction and joy and contentment and rest that the world could never offer. And also, I've never met someone else that when I'm down and I've failed and I've disappointed myself and everyone around me, he'll never kick me when I'm down and he never kicks me out. In fact, he never ever leaves me alone. There's no better God for me because not only the way that he bled for me, but the way that he loves me still. No better God, no better God than the one in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, oh Lord, I pray that you would take captive our hearts, our minds, our lives, and our souls to the obedience of Jesus Christ as Lord. Oh Lord, we thank you that your spirit works through your word. And we ask of God that it would have all of its effects, long-lasting, irreversible effects. To you be the glory. And for our joy and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.